What's up, guys? This is the Dirt Bike Channel Podcast. How are you doing? This is Kyle Brotherson here. I've got Mike Spurgeon in office. Mike, say Word hi. Word up, everybody. Oh, my goodness. This is so cool. Mike is like moto man. Like, you, you guys are probably... You guys probably know Mike. He's like Taco Mike, right? Uh, yeah. He's got the t-shirt on. Mike is like a very experienced gearhead. You're a gearhead, aren't you? I am a moto nerd. Total nerd. Moto nerd. Is that a thing? Have you coined that? Yeah, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a nerdgasm here talking about all this <laughs> like under the curtain moto stuff. Oh boy. I wish you guys could have like jumped in here because Mike like spread out an entire bag of goodies across my floor. I don't have a big floor, but like we had every inch of it. He's just he came over here as like a kid in a candy store. He's like, hey, check this out, check this out. We had this whole floor covered up with moto goodies. So thanks for Mike for coming over. Mike, you're you're uh, you hail out of Las Vegas, right? Lost wages. Lost wages. So tell me, did you come up here just to visit with me, or, or were you delivering that beautiful dirt bike in the back of your truck? Yep. So I'm bringing a customer's bike up here. Got a guy in Salt Lake who we, I finished a bike for. Um, it's a it's a great story. This is a guy who found me a while back on YouTube. I'd done a, a bike and then put a video up, and then he sent me a message and said. Hey man, I want you to build, you know, a bike similar to that. I want all the goodies on it. I want it to be tricked out. And so, um, contacted me and then we built that bike for him. And then I'm up here to meet another client, a guy who wants, I think two bikes, similar setup, you know, like I'll buy the bike for him and then deck it out. Cause a lot of guys have visions and hopes and dreams about what they want for their bike, but maybe they don't have the understanding of what components they, sure. they're really after, how to yeah. do the setup or they don't have time or expertise. And, you know, there's a lot of good dealers out there. God bless the dealers, motorcycle, independent shops, uh, factory dealers. Those guys um, are where we've all probably got our bikes, but they're pretty limited on what they maybe know or understand about the aftermarket or mods or add-ons because maybe they need to stay within the boundaries of like what their dealer agreement is. There's certain things they, they're not allowed to do to bikes, just sort of they'll void and violate maybe emission standards. Sure. Yeah. Um, so being kind of an outsider and independent guy gives me a lot of flexibility to do things that are out of the box and maybe special and specific that either a dealer maybe doesn't even have on his radar. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly spending money, time and money, um, buying parts and then breaking them, testing them, taking them to Mexico, taking them to Baja with the specific intent of like trying to find its flaw and its weakness and break it. And then that doesn't pass. Like yeah. I take that off the list and then I just cycle through. If there's seven skid plates out there, I've bought all seven of them tried to, you know, exploit them and figure out what the limits are. And so the, my laboratory is pretty big with just a lot of cast off stuff. So I guess maybe when a guy is looking to do sort of an all out setup, that's maybe who's coming to me for, for that kind of thing. Fantastic. Some of you guys might know Mike from his Baja tours. We're going to get into that a little bit. You also might have seen his Facebook group. It's EXC slash FE performance and tech talk. Uh, company is taco or yeah, tacomoto.co, right? That's your website. Yeah. Tacomoto co. And so out of being clever, tacomoto co or is it co? So yeah, to be clever, it's tacomoto.co, which, yeah, which yeah. is the same way you would write it out if you wrote it. Tacomoto.co. So I also learned some interesting things about Mike, um, from his Facebook page. I find this very useful. Somebody did a, uh, I was, I was a guest on someone else's podcast a while back. And uh, he came in and he knew all this stuff about me. And I know that we have a lot of information online. Trolling, it was, huh? Yeah, it was just kind of scary. Like he knew my kids' names and all these things. So I didn't do that much trolling, but I did learn this about Mike. So, so uh, 
he's turning 115 years old this year because <laughs> he was listed. In, I'm not going to tell his birthday, but the birth year was 1905. So he looks actually probably he looks very good for turning 115. Um, I think but, when I sent it for Facebook, it wanted my birthday, and I was like, I'm not telling you my birthday. Well, so neither the month, the day, or the year are correct. Yeah, usually, yeah, usually <laughs> I say it's January 1st, like, and I pick myself as like an 80 year old man or something. I, I assume they, but yeah, so he's turning 115 years old, which is really great. The other thing I learned about Mike, and I loved this because I thought this was so poetic. I don't think he wrote this, but he says, happiness is like a cat. If you try to coax it or call it, it will avoid you. It will never come. But if you pay no attention to it and go about your business, you'll find it rubbing up against your legs and jumping into your lap. Did you write that? I did not. No, that's borrowed from somebody. It, it's a, a guy, the guy's name is Bennett. I forget his first name. Um, uh, you know, it's when you sign up for Facebook again, it asks you like, what are your, like, I don't know. It just wanted to know <sighs> everything about yeah, you. Yeah. So I they're just data mining, they're data mining. So I just filled in some stuff that I had at hand and that was something <laughs> that maybe I had it, had a top of mind. And so I just put that in there. Uh, yeah. The other thing I loved, which, and I had uh, me and my wife always talk about this, but I had never actually seen it in print, which was don't judge those who choose to sin differently than you. That really resonated with me at my stage of life. Um, with the things that I have going on, it's, it's just one. And that's like in a whole other tangent. It's the wrong, it's the wrong. So if, if this was the alpha quorum podcast, which Mike is, is a member of that, then we would go straight into that. That's where we would launch from that. We would do a whole two hour talking, uh, conversation about that topic. Yeah. That yeah. would be a good one. That'll be, that'll be, we'll do that for a different day. But basically Mike is an online purveyor of like a plethora of dirt bike parts on his website. It's tacomoto.co. There's all kinds of things on there. He's got some really, really cool stuff. We were just looking at a lot of it right now. And it's these things, like one of the things that he mentioned to me that I liked was he's like, look, I'm trying to find the smallest guy out there that's making the most innovative product, solving a problem. And we had a, just a ton of it out here on the floor, everything from fuel pumps to fuel rails and and like get ECUs, which we'll talk about a lot here in a little bit. And then just tools. It's like, hey, look, here's a tool that's awesome. And here's why my tool is better than yours, because it does this, that, and the other. And, and it's fun. It's fun stuff. So that's pretty cool. If you guys haven't checked out his website, you should go over there right now. Actually, don't go over there right now because you're, you're probably you're driving. You're doing this. You're listening to this. Yeah. But as soon as you get done with this, you should go over there. So yeah. And then check out the Facebook group EXC. FE, so it's EXC, EXC slash FE Performance Tech Talk. They do, you guys, you do like a Tech Talk Tuesday thing, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So every Tuesday, and I don't, I don't really get the word out as often as I should, but every Tuesday, I kind of hold office hours and I let people call me or message me or Facebook me or whatever. And then I freely answer, you know, I take my years of experience and I'm happy to give it away and to share it out. And so guys will call me with questions that are specific to, to the brand that I specialize in. But I'll get, you know, DRZ 400 questions. I'll get all kinds of questions, XR, old XR Honda questions. And I do my damnedest, really. I will sit there and I will look up manuals. I own a lot of manuals. And so I'll go to the paper book or I will try to answer your question and do, do a service for you because I know how frustrating it is to be confounded by some electrical problem or some mechanical problem that, that you just, you know, it's the internet is is got all the answers, but how to understand how to it. it. Yeah, yeah, how to find it and how to tease out from the whole big mashup of like all the information to just pull out the one nugget that you need and then understand how to quantify that, you know, how to use that. And so that's sort of what I'm trying to do is communicate that. 
Yeah, no, that's a super good service. That That is awesome. You guys should tune into that and check that out. But so kind of to kick things off, because you mentioned something there that is kind of a perfect segue into this because you said, hey, using my years of experience. So kind of give us a 40,000 foot overview of kind of your genesis in dirt bikes and off-road and motorsport. Um, how did you, you know, how did this start? Um, and, and then how did you get here? Oh, okay. So my first dirt bike was a, um, Oh, I don't even remember what model it was, but it was a two-stroke Husky, Husqvarna bike that I got out of a shed of somebody I bought. I traded some skis. I had snow skis. I was kind of over snow skiing. Where did you live at the time? Vegas. Not Ve- yeah, Wait, so, skis yeah, in Vegas? Right? Yeah, Bridenhead, Utah, or like okay. up on Mount Charleston. There's a little bit of skiing. So I remember selling my skis, taking the money, buying this this two-stroke, it's probably 70s little little bike, and then cobbling it together and getting it running. And I've always had mechanical aptitude. My dad was a radar tech in the in the army in the Korean War. He was a teletype engineer. So teletypes back in the day, you could transfer information, printed information from it was like a mechanical printer typewriter device. Look this up. They're fascinating. It's a mechanical computer printer machine. Unbelievable cool. the intricacy of it. My dad. Um, would service those and then modify those. And so I grew up in a household of components, engineering, parts, taking things apart. I was taking apart VW. My my first car was a VW bus that I, my parents gave me. I Not was, the bug, it was the bus. The bus, yeah. I was 14 years old and they nice. said, you can have this when you're 16, but the motor wasn't any good. And so I'm a 14-year-old kid and I dropped the motor on a skateboard. And Did I, you re-jug it? I rebuilt it, jugged it, yeah. yeah, that, yeah. Isn't that a VW term, like jugging it? Um, I think so, right? So you can up the because you don't you don't put pistons. You, you don't like you just rejug a VW. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, I could be wrong. Yeah, the boob job on the VW. So <laughs> did that, and then just um, I fixed the buses and the VWs of all my buddies, and I've just always been um, in saturated with that. It's part of my DNA. In fact, it's really cool. I love telling the story. My my. Um, one of my one of my grandfathers on my dad's side holds a holds patents and world records in horse racing. He developed some sort of bridle attachment for chariot racing. That was a wow. thing, and he developed and innovated products for that world. Holds patents and then had world records for these horse races. Holy cow! So all of that sort of like is just in my DNA. And I when I look at a thing. Um, I see its flaws and its weaknesses and then either go about improving it or just scrapping it and trying to innovate or come up with a new one on my own. And that's just something I've always done. And so transferring all of that, it just sort of like, it just, it's, I'm always sparking with that inside of me. And I just decided to transfer that to mechanical horses, whereas my family lineage was in real horses. And now this is, this is what I, I'm spending my time doing. The upgraded horse. The, the gasoline horse. The horse that you don't have to feed every day. Yeah. You just have to feed your passion. So in the last 115 years, then you've, you, you've learned a lot about these types of mechanical things. No, I think that's, I think that's interesting though, because when you, when you talk about coming from a family that's tearing things apart all the time and, and figuring out how things work, that makes a lot more sense. You know, how you got to where you are today. I've never been afraid to just crack something open. Even if I've never seen it before, I'll take a brand new bike that's got some new components, new technology on it, and just rip it apart, get into it, and try to figure out what's going on inside well, that, of it. That's the best way to learn, though, right? I mean, is to look and say how it, you're not necessarily reverse engineering it, but you're looking at like why, how do these components work together? Yeah, that's one of the things that I think people should do. If you have a dirt bike, you should 
take <laughs> stuff apart, take stuff off of it. If you've got a carburetor, the best thing that I ever did as far as like learning carburetors and I'm just a novice at it, but I've gotten okay at like certain things is to take it off the bike, take it all the way off the bike and take it apart. Take every screw out of it that you can take out of it and be like, how does this work together? And then suddenly this thing, which is seems complex, you're like, oh, I get how this is working. And it's like a simple, you know, sim- simple beauty inside of there. But the only way you get to that point is by tearing it apart. So to you know? put the spotlight on you, brother, Kyle, you are a great example of that because you've only been self-admittedly like 10 years in this, yeah. uh, in this dirt bike thing. And you've now presented and positioned yourself to this really, really uh, valuable voice in the community as sort of a novice entrant. Sure. And you've, I think, exemplified that of just that attitude of, I'm going to figure it out on my own. I'm going to take it apart. I'm going to, I'm going to crack this code. And now you've got this great success doing what you just said of like, I want to figure it out for myself. And, um, and I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to break it. I'm not afraid to take it apart. I might screw this up, but that's okay. This is how I'm going to learn. So yeah. uh, everything you've done and created, I mean, I'm looking at your board here and you've got all these cool electronics, YouTube, all of this stuff you've sort of mastered. And I bet it's that same mindset of just, I'm going to launch, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to have, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to stick with it until I crack it, until I figure it out. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. And you've got to, you've got to, you, you can't be afraid to take a step backwards. Sometimes, sometimes you might ruin something, you know, and sometimes you, and, and I think that, I think that we know this in the dirt bike industry, not everything we do is going to be a success. Not every part you put on your bike is going to transform things. You know, sometimes, sometimes you can spend money just to spend money and it, it isn't any better. It just looks different. And I think if you have that mindset of knowing that not all of your hits are going to be home runs. I mean, I look at it in baseball, like in baseball, if you, you know, strike out 70% of the time, you're considered one of the best people in the sport. That's amazing. You know what I mean? And so, and, and if we translate that over to our industry, <clears throat> A lot of things we do are not going to stick to the wall. Like I, you throw up spaghetti and see if it sticks to the wall, and uh, and that's how we that's how we learn. Tim you know? Ferriss. Some of them, some of them are going to work, and some of them are not. So, well, that's fantastic. So it, it was about a year ago that you went full time into moto. What were you doing, kind of right before that, for your nine to five day job, like your profession? You were in. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So. Um maybe to take one step back to take one step forward. So my first real job was I worked at a Chevrolet dealership back in the day. I was a young guy and I um, was a mechanic. And so I got all those ASE certs. So I was an ASE certified mechanic and I I worked in a GM shop, Chevy shop. And I was doing a lot of electronics, um, troubleshooting, drivability concerns. So that would be a car. It's not running good. Fix it. Right. And so we had scan tools and we had all the equipment to go in and look at diagnostics and reflash ECUs and all of that stuff I was doing back in the day. And then somehow just kind of transitioned and f- got into the construction industry. And so I spent- Well, you were living in Vegas. Yeah. So it so was I'll, like a big boom, right? Right. So I spent about 20 years in the construction industry, working for a great guy, doing something I really liked a lot. And I was working in, um, we were doing building automation, fire alarm systems. And so it was detection stuff, electronics, programming. These were you know, computer-based systems um, in buildings, building controls, and then just little by little, the whole moto thing just sort of was calling to me just in the back of my mind, like, you know, go back into the shop. I guess I'm a mechanic at heart. I think I'm, I think I'm one of those guys who's a British guy in a shed, you know, just cobbling away. I think that's who I am in my DNA. And so I just needed and wanted to go back to that. And I think our timelines kind of synced up where you left a career and then got into this thing, working for yourself, doing your own thing. I think our timelines were pretty close and... 
I, um, when I, when I decided that it was time before I needed to really lay a foundation and groundwork and I needed and wanted to become a dealer for a lot of the brands that I knew that I needed to have relationships with and I was going to sell and, and use. And so I went on this, I just launched again, maybe this DIY attitude. I, I started contacting these manufacturers and just giving them my story. I just essentially made a personal contact and I said, look, I'm a nobody. You should probably hang up the phone and not talk to me. I'm an absolute nobody. <laughs> Which is a great way to start a conversation. Sure. I'm a nobody. I have no credentials. I have no history or standing in this industry, but I want you to take a chance on me. Sign me on as a dealer, a full-fledged dealer, and then I'll see what I can do for you. And I'll, I'll, I think it'll be in the long run a, a good, you know, a good marriage. And I got on with a couple of little small companies. The smaller, I started really small intentionally because they were probably, they, you know, little guys always start out somewhere. Yeah. Everybody starts as a little guy. And so I got on with a few of the littlest guys I could think of and then sort of parlayed that. And eventually the first first real dealership that I ever got was with um, Promoto. And you had you had the president of Promoto on not that long yeah, ago. Lynn Hodges. Lynn. And so I don't know Lynn and he doesn't know me, but I got hooked up with somebody in his organization and they they brought me on and then um, Recluse, I got on with them. And then once I had a couple of those, then it became really easy. Then I could approach other guys and say, look, I'm already a dealer. And then it just became a snowball. And now I've got you know dealer affiliations with any, you could walk into any moto shop and look at their line card and I have the same one. So I'm just little old me doing my thing, but I have now gained, I guess, some traction through just putting in the work, putting in the passion. Maybe my only secret is that I'm, um, when, when, when I'm awake, my lights are on, you know, I'm thinking moto, I'm, 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 I'm saturated in this stuff. And, and so maybe that spills over into the, into the contacts that I have. And, and it's really, it's just been great. And I'm, and I'm running full speed with it. No, that I can relate to that a lot. So, you know, the the only difference that I have is as I end up having to shut down the dirt bike think um, at a certain point. Uh, and I'll I'll go I'll go like certain times of the day. It's like I need to think about something else. Otherwise I, I feel like a burnout coming on. Cause because with me, I was doing my day job. I mean, obviously I did a day job up until about a year, little over a year ago. And and dirt bikes were this side hobby of mine that I thought about a lot. As soon as I went full time into this, then I had to create some boundaries. I had to create some walls where it's like, look, there are times that I'm going to purposely think about something other than dirt bikes so that I don't burn myself out and so that it doesn't become a drag for me, you know? So that, that's kind of how I've, how I've structured it. Have you had to do that at all? Have you noticed that? Or is it just hundred percent moto all the time in your brain and it works? So one of the, you know, I've been thinking about this more and more because I'm still in that maybe honeymoon phase where I can do it 24 hours a day, but I will start to experience burnout like you talk about. And I'm aware of that. And I know that'll happen. One of the things too that I need to caution myself against is 24-7 access. So because of all these tools and resources yeah. where people can, you know, and I'm I'm not shy. I'll give you my cell phone number and my personal email. It's on I'm, his website. It's on my website. So I'm not afraid of having you get a hold of me. There are there are people though who will take advantage of that and bless their hearts. They don't know any different. There's, you know, we're racers. We want it. We want it now. We want to be on the podium. I want the gold medal. Give me the trophy. Give it to me now. And so there are guys who will order something. And why isn't it here yet? Why don't I have it in my hand? I, you know, I just, I just clicked. Why isn't it here it's yet? It's the Amazon world. It's the Amazon world. And it's also, why aren't my questions being answered? I emailed you an hour ago and now they're texting me. They're like, why haven't you responded to me? And so people I think are, are tuned into this like instant gratification and, and I'm okay. 
I have been okay with maybe on a Sunday in the afternoon when I'm with my family, I'll get a text and it's somebody who's asking me about a part uh, or, or whatever, a question. And I've probably taken, I've probably taught people that, that, you know, people will treat you how you teach them to treat you. So maybe I've given people permission to have 24-7 access to me and I probably need to throttle that back, maybe have some sort of automatic reply that says, hey, it's, you know, office hours or X, I'll talk to you tomorrow yeah. during whatever. So I probably need to do a better job at, at managing the, my on time and off time. And I'll probably put that into place now. Yeah, I think it's something that we all, in the, it, as we start out in these small businesses, it's it's a hurdle that we're all going to have to, you know, be able to figure out how to jump. I look at my thing and I'm going, I've always told everyone that I'll respond to your emails. And there are times of the year where I look at that stack of emails and I worked for a multi-billion dollar corporation as one of the top sales guys. And now I'm responding to more email than I did then. And it kind of scares me. And I'm going, there will be a point here in the not too distant future where I will not be able to take all these emails. I'm going to have to outsource it. And and how to do that is kind of scary because you don't want to give up. Because I know you, you, you're priding yourself on giving the exact right information. You're, you're making a big effort for that. And at a certain point, it won't be possible for either you or I to make those personal responses to those emails. And that's kind of a scary thing. I'm a little saddened by that because that means that I'll lose that that touch. I think one of the ways that I've had some success, and I think you have too, is that people do feel like they have a relationship. Like I watch your videos. I've watched your videos before I've met you, before we had per direct contact. And you get to where you like, I understand some of your mannerisms. I understand sure. your sense of humor. Like I get this guy. If I met him, you know, if, uh, I, I feel like I have a little contact with this person. And so I think that there's a little bit of that with me. People see Facebook groups or YouTube videos that I make or whatever. And then they feel like we're friends and they want access. And I am okay with that. In fact, I enjoy that. I think that, yeah. th I think that benefits both of us. At some point though, that probably has to get a little thinner. That rope needs to like stretch out a little farther the and, and I am a little bit saddened by that, but one of the things I've tried to do that works for me, and I don't know how this could quite work for you, but since my stuff is, people are mostly coming to me for technical stuff, nuts and bolts. I've, I've really tried to focus on these little white papers. These are like engineering sheets that are very, very exhaustive. And that you can give back to them. Yeah. And so people, a lot, I've tried to automate. So when somebody messages me and they say, Hey, question X, Y, Z, I will send them back instead of like this long personal reply. It might be, Hey, Hey dude, what's up? You know, whatever. And then here's five links to, to, to ways I've automated yeah. my answers. And so instead of having to type out a, a, or do a phone call with you, I can give you this sort of automated response and hopefully I can yeah. continue to improve the videos and the content so that it's more exhaustive in its, in its answer and in its, um, in the value that it gives them. Absolutely. I've, I've had to do that too. There are certain questions that I just have a, basically a canned response and I'll personalize the beginning of it. And, uh, because it, it's impossible to, to answer every single question unique every time. You know, especially some of these more technical questions or, or things are just people saying, what dirt bike should I get next? And so it's I like, bet you get a, a bazillion of that. I get, I get that. If there What's is a, your number one question? That's one of them. Like, what no, should I buy? Number one question is what dirt bike should I buy? And so it's just, this is such a loaded question. And sometimes people will give me zero background, you know, and I, I look at that and I'm like, I think basic, based it off your sentence structure, I think you're 14. And other times they give me a like book and I'll look at those, you know, four or five, six paragraphs and I'll just go, 
How do you handle people that only want to talk to you and they only want you to hear? So I get this but, all but, the time. But at the same, but but I'm I'm breathing loud, and it isn't because I don't want to respond to them. I just go, okay, buckle up, because now I'm going to spend the next five minutes reading this. But at the same time, I'd rather have more information than less. So I'm not telling people not to give me more information. It's it's that it's that double edged sword where the kid a kid says, "What dirt bike should I buy next?" And I look at that and I roll my eyes. I have no idea. The guy who gives me five paragraphs, he's actually given me. Most of the answers that I, well, a lot of the answers that I need, but it's a time commitment, you know? And so I'm not, I'm not even asking people to stop doing that. I'm saying more information is probably better. But when you look at it from a time perspective, you're going, how am I going to, how do I manage this? You know? And, and then I've got four kids and I've got my wife and, and I've got, you know, responsibilities in my community or in my church or whatever. And I've got basketball practice. Well, I've got two basketball games tonight with my kids. You know what I mean? I've got a basketball practice with Case. I've got a basketball game with Connor and you you have to fa- factor all that stuff in. You know? Would it would it serve you then to have maybe some sort of like um, sheet that you would and you'd have to kind of continually update this with new models? But it would be if you're this type of writer and this is your budget, then here's the top three. Kyle's top three, so Kyle could have his yeah. his recommendations based on these criteria that you would have to self select whether or not you fit in this these brackets. And then this is your top three picks for. And you could even brought it out in parts. Are you a recluse writer? Yes or no? Like answer these sort of like a if then yeah. chart, and then come up with some sort of outcome. No, that's actually a really good idea. I should create a flow chart here where you answer your own questions. You answer your own. I like that. I'm going to I'm going to work on that. You're welcome. So so let's go back into you. So Taco Moto Tours. You were doing this sometime around circa 2008. Do I have that date right or is that just a fictional date in Facebook again? I don't know. I don't I, um I, I'm Tell terrible me. with dates, but it's been it's been more years doing these little tours than I've been doing the Taco Moto Co thing, which is more like parts and tech stuff. So I got wrapped into Baja many years ago. Many you may know a, a great guy, Paul Edmonds, I UTMA. Know his name, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I his his uh, daughter is married to uh, my old boss at okay. a company I used to work with. He's cool so I, I haven't met Paul, but I feel like I know him. Legend. So if you are in Nevada, Utah, Arizona, California, if you're in the in Intermountain West, I guess maybe that you generically what you call that, and you and you're in moto or even side by sides, you have heard of the Utah UTMA Utah Trail Missing Association and Paul, legendary guy, generous, kind. Um, Work ethic like none other. This guy he's spends... almost as old as you. You're 115. <laughs> I think. I think he's like. I think. Yeah. I think he's like one. He's like 80. Yeah. 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 Somewhere. We're both checking into the senile home here really quick. <laughs> That's not what you call him. That's incorrect. Politically incorrect. Edit that. So <laughs> he exposed me through that UTMA trip. I don't know, 15 years ago to to Baja, and it just got into my DNA. Something got reconfigured. Something clicked inside of me. It was. It was being on a dirt bike with the ocean, with the sky and the mountains and the cactus, tacos, the people, just, there was just something that happened at the like molecular level to me when I combined all of that together with my friends and the risk. And we were out in the middle of nowhere and you have to rely on your own wits and your own mechanical abilities to just get through. And then there's the whole, there's the whole vector of like the lead up the preparation, it, it activated parts of my like caveman thinking that we were going to do this in a team in a platoon. We're going to have, we're going to have guys. We, if you've ever read a book, Sebastian Younger tribe, he breaks down and goes into and explores the whole concept of military engagement, the fraternity and camaraderie that happens between men when they engage in these, um, I use the word risky, but 
whatever, that may not be the best word, but the, when you engage in these activities that tap into yeah. all of these um, ways that a man is specifically and uniquely a man, right? This is, this is, <clears throat> this is genetic. And that happened to me and it just, it activated a light inside of me, a button that needed to be continually pushed. And so that was a gift. He gave me this amazing gift. And then after going with that UTMA group for a while, it's, I, I began to want more, more on my own, more exploring. Cause they've got a bit of a format that they sort of follow and you have to, when you have that many people. And I wanted something more off the schedule. I wanted something that was um, maybe more self-directed. And so I just went down on my own and went with some buddies and then more guys wanted to go. And it just became this snowball thing of like, well, take us, take us, take us. And now it's sort of a semi, it's not a full-time thing, but I'll go five or six times a year with these little small boutique groups. So these are like mainly kind of corporate trips. These are guys who have their names on buildings or they you know, our business dudes, construction dudes, and they are going to want to go down and have a very personalized trip, a very personalized experience. They want somebody to handle everything. And it's, it's him. And then his like partner, and then the, the kids, the older sons, and then the superintendent, and then one or two customers. And it becomes this sort of like team building experience. And that's sort of what it's evolved into. And it, it is, I couldn't love it more. That sounds amazing. It, it is, it has, Surprise me how often I get people reaching out to me who are the presidents of companies. You just mentioned that where you're like, it's, you know, these higher ups in the companies and then it's their business partner and then their kids. And, and so you're taking them on these personalized tours in Baja. And I think that's amazing. And it, it, it sounds like what I'm, because I get these people emailing me that are, you know, I look up their companies. I'm like, wait, you're employing like 300 people or, 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 you know, a thousand people and you're interested in dirt bikes and you're just getting into this. It's been staggering to me to see how many people are just getting back into dirt bikes, either for the first time, getting into it for the first time or getting back into it after a 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 year hiatus, you know, and these are people that are, you know, very uh, successful in their industries. And it sounds like you've uh, been taking a lot of those types of guys to Baja. That's pretty cool. Those are sort of like my, my client now. And what, to, to even expand on what you've just brought up, I've got guys who will come to me who have who were who rode bikes when they were kids, and then they hurt themselves. Their mom said no more. They got busy in college. They got married. Whatever. Now they're looking at their life. They're looking backwards, and they're kind of stale. Maybe and maybe that's not the right way to say it. But they're they've plateaued in their career. They've got free time, plenty of money. So time and money aren't really a concern anymore. And they want to sort of like reinvigorate themselves. Yes. They're looking backwards and saying, oh, you know, I, some of my best memories were me and my buddies out in the desert riding dirt bikes and just cutting loose. Man, I should really get a bike and I should get back into this. I have no idea what to get and what to do with it and how to be safe about it. And so I'll have guys get a hold of me all the time on the regular. And they're, they're like, I have time and I have resources, but I don't know what to do. I need a bike. I need some training. And I need a place to go on it. And I need coaching through all of that. I don't even know what helmet or gear or boots or whatever. And so I'll have dudes that'll come to me and we will, I will sort of be their personal ombudsman to the world. I'll open the door of the world of motorcycling. And these, these are gentlemen, these are dudes, or I can't think of any women, but they're all guys. And they are interested in 
adventure. They're interested. They want the full package. They don't want to go to motocross track. They're not going to the dunes. They're not going to turn their their ball cap sideways. <laughs> Flat and, broom hats. Th- right. And they don't have a monster sticker on their truck. These are these are dudes oh. who want to ride the the tour of Idaho. They want to do the um the what what are those the um oh it'll come to me later. It's the it's the it's the two track trips at Butler Maps. What the hell are they called? I don't know. I'm I'm drawing a blank. Too. Me too. But it'll pop into my head later. But they want to do like uh, the the Trans America Trail, okay, for example, or the Rocky Mountain Trail. These state trails, again, you guys know Butler Maps makes a state route. It'll pop into my head later. But anyway, they want to do these multi day long adventure trips. They need camping gear. They need bags. They need bike setup. All of that and. I've sort of created a little area of service to that community and um, can take these guys, you know, soup to nuts from not riding and um, not knowing what to do and how to get there. And I can, I can set them up and then take them to Mexico if they want to uh, on a trip. And so I've just had a great time opening the, the world of motorcycling up to a lot of these guys who are maybe afraid to walk through it. Well, that explains a lot because I was perusing, perusing your website. Yes, that's the term yesterday. And I saw a tense on there. And yeah. I, I just, I just, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But now, and now it makes more sense. You've got, you know, these guys that are doing these multi-day trips. And so there's a lot of really cool stuff on here. And some things that didn't like appear to me as moto stuff right off the bat, but it makes more sense now. And something else too, that's really happened. That's been exciting for me. And this is a guy I'll name drop Paul Stewart, RTW Paul. A lot of guys know him. He's got a very, very active and and engaging social following meeting him, um, sort of opened up some more doors for me in the industry. He's a guy, you should look him up. RTW Paul, Paul Stewart, find him on all the platforms, photographer, adventurer, world traveler, He's building a bike right now, a 500 EXC that he's going to take around the world here in about a month. He's like thir- less than 30 days away and the clock is ticking and um, he's going to ride that bike around the world. And so I've partnered with him and sponsored him and helped him build and finish his bike. And then I've got other dudes, three or four other guys. Pablo is one of them. And then there's Jay. I mean, I could I could throw out some more names. These are dudes who are essentially you know, live in that dream. Like if you've got that. So Kyle, I think that you and I, and I think motorcyclists are a unique character. We're a unique individual. If, if this is 150 years ago, we would be cowboys. We would be frontiersmen. We would be the dudes who would be out blazing trails. Rough riders. We would be rough riders. We'd be pony express riders. We outlaws. Yes, yes, yes. We somehow are defective, brain damaged, (laughs) um, we're we're particular we're lunatics in a particular way that causes us to just be sort of unsettled in our own skin and we need to see new horizons and new vistas we're constantly sort of wanting adventure adrenaline thrill junkies all of these things we would have been cowboys we would have we you and I would be sitting in a saloon while the blacksmith was fixing you know the horseshoes on our horses like we would be bumping into each other talking about rifles and and whatever but here we are talking about dirt bikes which are our modern horses that are taking us and opening these worlds of adventure and experiences. And so there, there are dudes out there sitting in cubicles under fluorescent lights, answering emails, looking at spreadsheets who just, I was that guy who just are like crawling out of their skin. And they know that over some horizon, some yawn horizon 
is all of these things that are sitting inside of their sort of in their DNA, right? There are these little, little burp bubbling um, brooks of streams that want to break through the surface and come out and, and somehow they watch a video or they get captivated through motorcycling. And that's what I, that's what I want to do. I want to share this. I want to expose this world to people and then help them walk through it, you know, really smartly and safely. And, um, I just am attracted to dudes who like dirt bikes. I think we're a unique character. I think we have unique attitudes. I think there's a spiritual component to all this too, that we haven't really talked about. That's a whole other conversation. Um, so I, I'm looking at this whole thing holistically. That's maybe my unique, that's my killer app is you can go to a parts store and you can buy a thing and screw it on your bike and then, yeah. and then it, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. But I think what I'm trying to do is bring this whole full picture of the entire experience, the, not only the machine, but the technology behind the machine and then how to use it and, and, and this whole, this whole spiritual thing and tangible thing. Um, that's maybe what I'm bringing to this industry. I love the way that you put that because I think it's so eloquently said. And I think that is a big reason why I'm in this sport is just the adventure of it. You know, um, and, and there's nothing wrong with like a motocross track. There's, there's all types of ridings, uh, you know, but to me, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn towards this adventure and this, you know, this thrill idea of being out there on my own and me against the elements and doing those types of things in the backcountry. Um, and I want to be far away from everyone. You know, that's one of the reasons why I don't do racing. I haven't done race. I'll probably end up having to do a couple races this year. I'm not out there to make, you know, connections with 300 guys. I'd rather have a small group of people, that platoon that you were talking about where we're going out and it's us against the world and we're going to be 60 miles from nowhere. We're going to see if we can make it through this terrain. And obviously we're on, you know, usually we're on trails. So it's getting home is not that, uh, the question of getting back is usually we're going to, we're going to get back, but there's this, a sense of adventure and what's going to happen, the places that are going to, that you're going to going to go. It, you never really know. You don't ever know what's around the next turn. Whereas, you know, and, and I'll get into some track riding later, but on tracks, you know, what's around every corner. Cause you've hit it 65 times because you keep doing a lap after lap after lap with me. It's all just, everything is, everything is new. You're experiencing it all for the first time. And, and that really resonates with me. You know, that idea of the Wild West is, is super fun, super fun uh, concept. So tell me what, um, just kind of going back, because we even talked a little bit, well, you brought up the spiritual side of it. So, I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest here. You've got an open affection for the four-stroke, uh, you know, 500cc bikes. I think that's one of the things, it's one of your fortes, you know. Yeah. So when you finally came out of the closet as a four-stroke lover, did your family or other like <laughs> religious ecclesiastical leaders, did they condemn you for, for going down the four-stroke path? Or, or, and how did you handle that? That's hilarious. This, when I, guys, when I read this question that Kyle emailed me, I loved it. This is why I wanted to come up to Salt Lake and do this thing with him, because I think he's got a great attitude and a great spirit. I think one of the, again, Kyle, I love, I love what you're doing. I love your videos. They have a tongue-in-cheek attitude about them that is, that is, that is a one-off. All of us have seen videos of guys who stand there in front of a dirt bike and talk about it. And it's very sort of clinical. You could almost put a lab coat and a pointy hat on the dude. Um, and it's just some poindexter dude talking about the ins and outs. And I worry sometimes that maybe I'm a little bit like that. Sometimes, that, and I'm, you know, if you if you knew me in my personal life, I'm, I'm the opposite of that. But I've sort of wondered that 
I need to be maybe too clinical because maybe my customer or client sort of is looking for that. But I love your approach. I love your tongue in cheek attitude. I love, I love the vibe and everything you got going on. I love this question. So yes, my primary bike, my primary expertise is with the four stroke EXC and FE. So those would be the fuel injected 12 through six, uh, 12 through 20. Um, in, in you caught yourself because you were, you were telling me about how the 16s are the greatest thing. Yeah. Like 12 to 16. And, and then after, that's a whole, but I do want to get into that. Let's nerd it up about that later. Yeah. So, um, the two stroke is a unique platform that has a spe a special set of characteristics and attributes that do not transit over to the rider, to the writing that I typically do. And the rider that I typically cater to the four stroke is the platform for that. The big bore five hundreds really are the platform for the, the guys who are doing that kind of writing. And so what, one of the things that I've done is put in my 10,000 hours on that platform. So, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell theory about becoming an expert, you invest your I've, 10. I've read that one. Yep. Okay. So I've put my 10,000 totally. hours into that platform and that's maybe why I get so much traction and so much, um, so many questions about guys and from guys who are building those bikes, want tuning advice and, and other advice on that platform. So that's my area of specialty. Um, the two stroke. And that bike works perfect in Baja. Like 500 EXC <laughs> is like perfection for Baja, right? Totally. I would make a very strong argument. I try to make the argument that the 500, 501 EXC FE is the best all around bike there is. Even for that hard enduro stuff, we'll have to go on a ride and I'll you, bring up I, I I'll bring up one of my 500s. I'd love to have that argument with you. I would love it to have it on the trail because I think what we do is we do this bike swapping and you would say, damn it. It, that... would, it would be better to do it on the trail because then you would know I'm right. <laughs> on the trails I'm riding. No, no, but, it, but it's true though because everything is, and I will admit, like the 500 is an incredible bike. Yeah. Incredible. S and for certain things, like you cannot beat it. Yeah. And we've got to the point where we've we've so refined the 500 in terms of power delivery, traction, uh, suspension, the, the the with the Recluse CX clutch, power delivery, all of these little little tweaks and mods and things that we've done to really put a package together. It makes that bike so suited for hard enduro and um, technical riding that it's shocking and surprising to a lot of guys who have thought the only platform is a 250, 300, two stroke for that. They're blown away at how adaptable the four stroke 500 is to that now. Arguably, there are there are there are things that that four stroke machine weighing two sixty or whatever the whatever the curb weight is on that that it has it it tapers off in certain ways that the that the lighter more nimble three hundred will excel and so it is not really the best scalpel for all surgeries but it's surprisingly adaptable where I think it's typically um, not shut down or the thought of it is really people generally don't see that as a platform for single track and it really really is and it yeah. can be well i would love to see i'd like to see a person start on a 500 a lot more than a 450 motocross bike i mean it just offers so many more advantages even if they're just going to go do single track trail riding you know i couldn't agree so. more in fact this is what i tell guys all the time i think everybody's first bike should be like a 350 exc an exc 350 is the first bike for everybody um there's so many reasons why a four stroke should be people's first bike. Uh, Are you talking about like, what's this age demographic though? I, I if, if they're 14 years old. So you, we can't speak in absolutes here because I got people email me. I, I don't dare. I, in fact, the 350 isn't on my list of, I list out like nine bikes. 350 isn't on there for a beginner. Yeah. I, I would argue that it is because it, it, 
gives you a bike that is, you can sticker it in all 50 states. You can put a license plate on it if you needed to. So if you're a young guy and you want to, you, yeah. you you know you if you stick if you sticker it then it's it has some advantages yep you put put a plane on and that could be like your little primary transportation bike if you're a young kid if you're a college kid you can also go out and ride that in the dirt it's got very trackable power it's super linear in the power band you can mod that out to really get explosive in terms of mid mid to uh, top end power but it's a great platform for somebody to sort of like get their balance down, to understand throttle control, braking, all of the all of those variables that happen on a dirt bike that are accentuated on a motocross bike. So on a motocross bike, again, we agree there. Terrible platform for a first bike, typically for most people, unless you're sort of gifted and naturally talented with um there are guys that will go on a motocross bike, a young kid, and they just master it and they take off and yeah, it's like fish a one twenty five. I do. If you're a if you're a fourteen, fifteen year old kid, I do think a one twenty five motocross bike is is a really good bike. To, but we're doing different things because I've got people that are trying to go single track or ride a little bit of trails and a little bit of single track. And I think a one like a YZ one twenty five is a fantastic bike I for a lot of those kids to start out on. I think so too. I think let me let me qualify then. Say anybody over eighteen, I think the ideal bike is the three fifty EXC. Until you have explored that, until you like figure that you need more power, less power, two-stroke power, whatever, until you want to differentiate. But but an entry-level bike, I, that's that's my well, and that's then, mine. And and I'm not and yeah, and I'm not going to argue with that one if because it, it, it is a good bike. But um, here's something that I've always felt is useful for people, and I don't think people do enough. Let me give you an example. Somebody will go out there and they'll buy. In 2008, they bought a Honda CR450R. And then three years later in 2011, they buy it again because it's the best bike ever. And then three years later, they buy it again in 2014. And then they buy it in 2017. And now they've had five Hondas. It's 2020. And they've had the Honda CRF450R four or five times. And it's the best bike ever in their mind. Sure. And I'm like, dude, you have made a massive mistake. And I'm not even saying that that bike isn't good. What I'm saying is you have no idea what if you're it's leaving good on the table. Yep. And, so, and so my thought is, okay, let's get this, you know, I'm okay with, with what Mike is saying, get this 350 EXC. The next bike, buy something different. Absolutely. Buy something different. And, and, and because you're never going to know, like you can listen to Kyle, you can listen to Mike, you can listen to anyone else in the world, but everyone's in a, is an individual and people have different likes and there's no way for you to know unless you branch out and get some different things. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just cringe when I see somebody bring over to me a Sierra 450 and it's their first bike. It's a kickstart bike. Yeah. It's have, it's sprung really stiff. It's carbureted. You got to fool with jetting. Um, the power is absolutely explosive. It's too much to handle. It has a heavy clutch. Braking is just single finger. There's so many reasons why a Sierra 450 is not an ideal first bike. It's a terrible first bike. Now, let me just say, I love the hell out of a Sierra 450. It's fun, fun, fun. Love cutting up on one of those, but I'd never put that machine in the hands. That's, that's like if somebody asked, if we were gun experts, what's my best first gun? Oh, this 357 Magnum with the long barrel. Like, what are you kidding? Like, let's, yeah. let's graduate you up to that gun. So start with a 22, start with a 22 yeah. and let's go out to the range and get you comfortable with that. So the CRF 450 is a, is a great machine, but just like a gun choice, there are lots of guns for lots of reasons. And, um, you need to be very thoughtful and careful about which one you pick. Absolutely. So tell me this one. We talked about it a little bit earlier before, but I get a lot of emails in my inbox um, of people that have maybe purchased a product from someone else. Like 
the perfect segue into Get. So I get I get emails from people buying these Get ECUs, which are made by Athena, uh, and the, and it's either for their four-stroke bike or their two-stroke bike, and they've bought it from someone else. It might have you know some other retailer. It might be Slavens Racing, might be Rocky Mountain ATV, it might be eBay, uh, Amazon, eBay, whatever, KTM Husky, and they're not getting the support that they feel like they need. And so they're coming to you for help. Either they're coming to me and asking me a question or they're saying, hey, look, I talked to Mike. And, and a lot of times I've pushed them over to you. And here's the interesting part about that. You are giving support to people who didn't buy it from you, which I think is really cool. You're supporting, Not, I'm not saying this is your entire business, but I've noticed that it's enough of your business for me to call it out where you're supporting people that bought a product from someone else and now you're helping them with it. How did you start that? And can you talk a little bit about uh, that that mindset? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think I, I don't know. I, maybe I've consciously done that. One of the things I think that I try to do in my own personal life, as well as like spill over in a business is, you know, some of us stop on the highway when we see somebody with a flat tire. Some of us, when we see somebody in the, in the parking lot, trying to get their groceries in the car, uh, will come over and help them load. When you're at Home Depot and there's one guy and he's trying to load 10 sheets of plywood by himself, some of us just go over and help that guy. There are there there. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that can be taught. I don't know if that can be instilled or trained. But I just happen to be the kind of person where I'm going to do that every time. And I don't know that I can turn that off. And when I see somebody struggling to fix their bike or having a hard time with a product, who cares where they got it? Um, and they are frustrated and my my thinking is is that if they're having a and we've all been that guy we've all been a guy who's staring at his yeah. bike and it doesn't work and you're just pissed because you want to go out there and explore and experience and get some adrenaline and, and blow off some steam you had a bad day here's 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 kind of where my thought stream goes is you know life is hard life is really hard and there's so many things coming at you that want to break you and one of the one of the great joys of life is to have an outlet that you can go and experience that will reset you and then you can bleed off some of that adrenaline and some of that cortisol and some of the tension and stress that's built up during your day. And for me, motorcycling is that. And so if a guy comes to me, I can hear in his voice, I can I can read between the lines of his email or his text or whatever. And I can tell that this guy is vapor locking and he's he's twitching out, he's freaking out. <laughs> and you know, and I can also hear that that he's having a hard time at work and I can sort of in tune that things with his relationship aren't going so great. And it's just this whole bit of energy that comes with this. My bike is effed up and I don't know what to do. There's so much more backstory to that. And I just feel for these guys and I really want them to get that bike running and to go out and to experience some renewal. And the motorcycle can offer that. And and if I can help you get your bike going and 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 go out there and tap into that. Like, I want that. I want to do that for you. And I think one of the things that I've had some insight into is putting together like some engineering sheets, some white sheets, some videos, some ways to sort of automate troubleshooting. And I've got some canned responses. A lot of the questions are the same, tons yeah. of questions. And so I've made videos that will go through and break down. And I need to make more. I have a long list. There's a hundred, not a hundred. That's an exaggeration. I have probably 25 videos more than I need to make that really can dive in and dig down. So when somebody gets a hold of me, I've probably got some sort of automated response that I can give them. And that maybe 75% of the guys are going to fix their problem. And then, you know, I can, uh, it's that 80, 20 thing and 20% of the guys it's not going to fix. And I can help them and get, get them past their problems. So 
Yeah. No, I, I love that. We, I used to work for a company that did that where we would support people no matter if you bought the product from us or not. And I think that's, I think what you do is you generate some goodwill there. And then, you know, if you're helping somebody in that way, then if, if, if they have, if you have something for sale that they need or some service or whatever, they'll look to you first the next time around. And so I think it's a smart, it's a smart business move. So I've, I've enjoyed watching that happen. And it's also just nice for me to every once in a while be able to kick an email off to somebody else. I, I'm not an industry expert. Um, I don't have that 10,000 hours on, on, you know, a, a 500. And so I have friends or people that email me and I'll kick them off to you. Something that we were talking about before we hit the record button here, though, we were kind of riffing on this, uh, going back and forth about EFI on two strokes and EFI on four strokes. And I've worked a little bit with you on this. Um, and I've talked to Derek Harris, HP for performance, which you work with He's pretty, my partner, pretty yeah. closely. Um, and one of the things that Derek mentioned to me on the phone, which I wanted to talk about, uh, and this was several months ago and he said, when he said it, I had him repeat it, uh, because I never thought of it this way before, but the concept was that the EFI, you know, fuel injection on two strokes are much more difficult than on four strokes. And it, it was it sounded so weird to me because four strokes are so much more complicated overall as an engine system, whereas the two stroke is a lot more simple, a lot less moving parts. But then when we talk about the aspirating that motor or, you know, giving the motor, the lifeblood, the fuel, the air, the two stroke offer has some complications that the four stroke doesn't have. Can you talk a little bit about how you found this to be the case? And we can riff on that just a little bit. Yeah. So a four stroke is a man and a two stroke is a woman. Is that why I like the two-stroke so much better? <laughs> you, I just learned a lot about you right now. There is a simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there is a mechanical simplicity to a two-stroke. So in its design and execution in terms of the, the hardware, right, the pieces, there are fewer pieces, and they move in a simpler way, but there is way more airflow, fuel flow, intake, exhaust, technology, and nuancing that happens on a two-stroke that does not happen or has much, much less impact and effect on a four-stroke. So we are moving a piston up and down. We're ingesting air, an air fuel stream. We're atomizing that. We're, it's a pump, right? An air pump or something. A, an engine is an air pump. Air in, air out. We're just using fuel. We're using a thermal expansion, rapid thermal expansion. The fuel is exploding. That's what we're using to drive the piston down. That's the mechanical force. Those fundamentals are the same, but how we get to the end result is very, very different. And the four-stroke is a... It's a watch in terms, so if you've ever pulled apart a mechanical watch and you've seen the gears, this, this gear has a mechanical advantage because of the sizing against this one, and there's all of these different intricate parts that work together in a, in a sort of a, a synchronized system to allow for the air to come in and out. It's very simple, so it's mechanically complex, but it's quite simple in terms of the variables. We just need to ingest a, a, a certain amount of air, and we have to... In, introduce a certain amount of fuel at a 14.71 ratio stoichiometric or somewhere within that range. So air fuel is a vector. We have to account for that. We have ignition and then we just have to get that air out. So the fundamentals are fairly simple and fairly narrow. There's a lot of play. There's a lot of adjustability we can have there, but the, but the variables are fairly limited and it's fairly simple in terms of that. And so a man is a fairly simple machine. We just, you got to feed us and you got to love us. 
and there's not much more that's got to happen. We'll probably be happy. It was a couple of throwing a few other things, but for the most part, it's a pretty simple formula, arguably so. And then um, on the two-stroke side, you have you have less equipment, so we don't have valve train. There's less machinery involved, but the way that we way we introduce fuel and where we introduce fuel and and the airflow and the the atomization process and then exhaust you know the two-stroke has that big weird looking pipe expansion chamber expansion chamber there's a lot going on in there um, the temperature of that expansion chamber affects everything and how we atomize the fuel and introduce it affects that temperature which affects the whole formula the variable so so much more complexity in how the two-stroke runs and runs well or not well that um, make it more, I don't know why I thought of this, but make it more complicated like a, like a woman. I, I please send your letters and emails and, and harsh comments. We welcome it. Blow up chat, blow up Kyle's inbox with all of your rebuttals on this, but it's just a simple way for me to sort of visualize all this. No, I love that. And it's, it's kind of a yin and yang because the mechanical components of the four stroke are more complex Yet, um, the, you know, these nuances on the two stroke of how we aspirate that thing and how we get it, the air and the fuel is then more complex because the sim the, the actual, you know, mechanical system is a little bit simpler. So that's super fascinating to me. And, and we talked also about how carburetors are, this is one thing that I, I want to drive home to people. And I know, I know Mike, that you agree with this car. We didn't go to two stroke. We didn't go to EFI on two strokes because there's a problem with the carburetor. The carburetor is amazing. It's not obsolete. It's not dead. It's because in all actuality, the carburetor, if you get right down to the nuts and bolts of it on a two stroke motor, the carburetor actually is simpler and you can make a really strong argument that it's better. A lot of, because it is, it's that it's a, it's its own mass flow air sensor by its, by its complete design. And so it does what it's supposed to do almost perfectly. Obviously we have to adjust some jets and we have to do some different things, but it's simplicity is it's, is it's, you know, strong point. And the fact that it helps that air come it, with, with this motor being this air pump, the carburetor is the perfect, uh, you know, the perfect companion to that. Then we go to EFI and we introduce all these problems that we're trying to overcome, right? Am I, am I off base on that? No, you're right. So, you know, these EFI systems in a car, so a couple of couple of points to backstop what you're saying in a car we could go out to your to, to my truck out in the driveway or any anybody's modern car and we're going to pull off 50 or 60 pounds of sensors wiring harnesses ecus computers devices fuel injectors everything that runs the engine management system knock sensors all of this stuff we're going to take all that off your car it's going to be like 60 or 70 pounds of stuff on the table and it's going to be this huge bulk all kinds of volume taken up in a car we don't care about space or weight we, we it's irrelevant so packaging concerns, all of that don't matter. And so the way that fuel management and engine management is, is handled in a vehicle is refined to the ultimate. The most efficient combustion happens in a in a in an automobile. You know, the the our cars now are getting astronomical mileage. That's because of all of these technological components and accessories. Okay. We can't put anywhere near the weight or size of any of this stuff onto a fuel injected bike. And so one of the things that I get asked all the time is, um, why? So motorcycles, uh, 
what, there's a lot to cover here. So these these ECUs, any of the, so let's talk about four strokes. The new 2020 KTMs, the, the, the EXC and FEs, and then the XCWs, uh, XCFWs, they have O2 sensors. And so they run in a closed loop protocol, which is the O2 sensor is making fuel, fuel inputs to the system. And that's managing fuel flow injector. When we throw on an aftermarket ECU, then it goes to an, a closed loops, I'm sorry, an open loop system where we are not, we're dumbing it down or so the thinking goes. The ultimate fuel injection system on a motorcycle would be a mass airflow sensor and pounds and pounds of complexity and, and, and sensors to really fine tune and improve the fuel management and ignition system on these bikes. We don't have that luxury. So what makes fuel injection difficult is to run the motor on the least amount of sensors possible. And, and that's been very stripped down its bare bones. A mass airflow sensor determines how, what the volume of air is to introduce the specific amount of air or specific amount of fuel to combust that volume of air in the combustion chamber at the exact ratio. A carburetor magically does that so brilliantly. It is a mass airflow sensor, or it's not a sensor, but it is a mass airflow. It works that way, though. Yes. And so because of the Venturi effect, because of the vacuum, air is being sucked through the carburetor, and the the needed amount of fuel through those calibrated jet sizes is being pulled in. Not more, not less. It's brilliant. It's, it's mechanically brilliant. And so arguably, a well-tuned carburetor fails lacks nothing against a fuel-injected bike. The only reason we're riding KTM two-stroke fuel-injected bikes is for emissions, trying to meet emission standards. That's it. It's not for performance, although arguably we can get the performance there. But, but it's, guy, harder. it's harder to get it, though, it's, right? It's harder and more expensive. We have to do more to really get your fuel-injected bike where you want it to be, where, a, where, where it's easier to get you certain drivability, rideability attributes through a carburetor. We can do that through a fuel-injected bike, but we're probably going to have to add ECU on it with some rider controls and give you... So, for example, like the Get is the only two-stroke option. Vortex, if we're talking about four-stroke bikes, we know Vortex is an option, but we don't have... Vortex doesn't support two-stroke bikes. So you, if you need to change fueling... And here's here's another thought, too, on these, on these systems. Because they don't have mass airflow sensors, we don't... We, um, if you make any change, this I get this question all the time. I bought my my TPI bike. I want to change a pipe, or I want to put vortex. Uh, uh, I want to put reeds on it. I want to swap the reeds. I want to do. I want to make changes. I want to put a head on it. Whatever. Will the bike self compensate? Will it just sort of learn that I've made these mods and then fuel accordingly? It will not. It absolutely won't. And basically, that software map for the fuel and ignition was written for the stock bike. And if we make any changes, then we throw that off. The math is now off. And where a carburetor could self-compensate to a, to a point, so depending on the jet size, there is a sweep. The sweet spot is whatever that jet is rated for, but there is a percent on either side where, where a carbureted bike, a jet, will sort of self-compensate and allow for some of those changes and variables to happen. So we get some altitude compensating, we get some temperature compensating, the carburetor will sort of magically, mechanically adapt for that. But a fuel-injected bike will not. It is programmed. Those are data bits that are programmed into like a spreadsheet. These are lookup tables. And so if you meet, 
if the computer sensors are saying, this is our water temperature, this is our air temperature, this is a throttle setting, this is our RPM, we are going to give you this much gas. Yeah. That's it. We're not going to give you any more. Because there's not enough sensors to, to uh, interpolate. Yes. The extra data. Yes. If we had an O2 sensor so we could measure exhaust gases, and then if we had a mass airflow sensor so we could really know exactly how much air is in our, in our, in being introduced in the system, then we could have this self-compensating system. But on our bikes, we do not have that. So we are very limited to mods. In fact, the, we're so limited, like no mods. We really can't make mods to these injected bikes because... With, with our stock map because the fuel table has a number that's been set to that to that value. And if it needed to be more, there is no more. It's that value or that's it. So um, when a guy on a carbureted bike wants different sort of f- a feel, power delivery feel, we can do that through Venturi sizing. We can do that through, there's even different butterfly. You know, a butterfly is a typical system, but R&D, is a great company and they make an innovative uh, carburetor that has sort of a corkscrew, sort of a the airflow of Kahin uh, uh, used to have the flat slide FCR carb, which was a, a dam, a vertical dam. And all of these different ways to introduce air through the Venturi create a different feel. So we could, it, we could manipulate airflow characteristics to give you ride characteristics through all of these different things. Uh, fuel injected bike, we're just sort of stuck with what we have and we, we, we can, we can simulate those and we can give you different ride attributes, but we have to do it electronically. And so we, now we're into aftermarket ECUs and traction control knobs and things like that, which are brilliant and genius and amazing. They do add cost and they do add complexity. So I totally get it. I get the frustration when guys are saying, you know, I bought this bike and now sort of I'm seeing if I want more or different, I have to spend more money on it. And this is the mindset that we now basically need to get into with these injected bikes. The old, the old school guy who would, would throw some jets at it and, and manipulate, you know, airflow to get you different attributes that, that doesn't exist anymore. So now we are talking to guys with laptops and slide rules and nerds, nerds run our bikes, <laughs> nerds run the internet, nerds run everything. And now, unfortunately, through these emissions regulations, these bikes have to meet these standards. And the only way to get there is through fuel injected, fuel injection. And so we've sort of handed the keys to performance and rideability over to these slide rule nerds. It just, it is what it is now. Yeah, it is. And there was something else that was interesting that we talked about before we hit record here, which was, and you had some interesting insight into this. KTM is doing this move to fuel injection on two strokes uh, because of emissions. So why not beta? And wh- why is why are beta and gas gas and Sherco not clamoring to do the same thing? And you had uh, an interesting answer for that, which I hadn't heard before, but it sounded completely plausible to me. It was made up, so I hope it sounded plausible. Um, no, the the reason that some manufacturers and these are like small boutique manufacturers, think of them as hobby 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 makers. These are these are guys. At least the government looks at them that way, right? Yes, exactly. So the US EPA and the Euro 4 and 5 standards both have sort of structures built into themselves that allow for small volume manufacturers who they they realize if these small engineering firms, small manufacturers had to meet the high standards, it would be a barrier of entry too difficult for almost anybody as a startup to meet. And so 
as a service, I guess, they allow for a softer set of standards for manufacturers to enter the vehicle marketplace. And, you know, these are um, dirt bikes. We're talking about dirt bikes, but yeah. the, the EPA is up in this stuff because they have wheels and these are motorized vehicles that could be used for they're not they're not highway, high, highway transportation they could be yes and the, in a lot of cases they are yes so the EPA looks at them with a with with the one of the you know one of the arms of their enforcement is that this is a motor vehicle and so they're going to apply some of their standards so a small volume manufacturer falls under the radar flies under the radar because it produces a lower number than whatever the standard is and I, I don't have that in front of me you can look this up it's all you can read this stuff it's pages and pages of technical documentation. So they have fewer number of X employees. They have fewer number of X dealers. They have fewer number of units sold. Gross volume sales are less than whatever. And so then they do not have to meet those standards. And and that's why I think it would be a smart move for like Sherco. We we you 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 raised this point and it's really valid. I think it'd be a smart marketing move for like Sherco and Beta to continue to not offer injected bikes to to capitalize on the fact that they can offer carbureted machines. Now, who knows how, I don't know, I don't know how long that window will stay open for them because eventually the Euro 5 standard will roll in, which is in many ways stricter than the U.S. standard. And these are European manufacturers trying to mainly market to European customers. So will they eventually need to roll over and and move their bikes into fuel injected, their two-stroke bikes? Probably. But I would say for the next few years, they... Obviously, I'm sure their engineering staff is smart. They know they know who the regulators are over there, and they know more about this than I do. But for the next couple of years anyway, those guys are going to be their only option for carbureted bikes, and I think it's great to have them as players in the market because KTM is meeting those emission standards because they are that that tier level manufacturer. The volume, they're hitting that volume. They've level. got that volume. They they yeah. really tip that over in between the 16 and 17 model year, and that we saw that in the four stroke uh, plated bikes. It hit pretty hard with new and increased emission stuff so so it became harder for you to get the same amount of performance out of the 2017 and newer ktms than the previous generation yes, right yes so this is why and with this was our conversation earlier there are guys who will say that the glory days of the ktm four-stroke plated bikes were the 12 through 16 because they lacked now they did still have some some stuff on there but the full weight of those that epa implementation didn't hit until 17 so if you wrote a 16 and 17 stock showroom stock back to back you there would be an astronomical difference between the two 17 being more restricted more choked up as they say it's so funny to hear you say that because i i constantly get people just reaching out to me saying these companies are purposely ruining this stuff they're ruining the sport ktm is ruining the sport and i and i go well there's there's probably a lot more complexity behind that. It's it's not as simple as that they're trying to ruin it. You know, it's like, okay, if all of a sudden you're now, the government is now holding you to a totally different standard, you know, you're going to have to put out a product that is going to be different, you know? And so for us to just say like, hey, they're ruining this bike, Yamaha or KTM or Honda or whatever are doing, it's so easy for us to make these blanket statements, just really simple, broad brush strokes and say they screwed this bike up. And it's like, well, there was a lot of changes that had to come into this that they didn't have control over, you know? So it's interesting to hear some of those backstories. I get so. that same question all the time or the statement, that, doesn't KTM know how to make a dirt bike? Don't they understand how to make a bike that works? They've broken motorcycles. These are machines essentially that are released by committee. So you, I like to think of it as the, 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 the look, the guys who work at KTM went to college. They know how to make a motorcycle and they ride and they know how to ride well. And they have race teams that are, the best in class, world class. They just gave up the Dakar win this year to Honda 
and good on Honda. But for like 18 years in a row, KTM owned the podium at Dakar in almost all classes. Go to any of the GNCC races, any of the local club races, you're almost always going to see a KTM product sweep the podium, if not take the majority of the podium. These guys know how to make machines. They know how to make them. They know, they know what they're doing. But what happens is those machines go into a pipeline that goes through a committee and then it goes to your dealer. That's where things happen that are outside of their control. And so the engineering department is offering you a machine that we, so what, what I kind of specialize in, let's, let's get you a machine back that the engineering department had in mind all along before the committee got a hold of it. And so that's kind of what our specialty area is, is how do we, how do we give you the performance, the rideability and the characteristics, not only that maybe engineering had in mind, but like, what do you want to do? One of the things that, that I have to dispel all the time are all these like internet lore where everyone seems to have a formula like, okay, so for these street bikes, uh, pull the reeds, put a vortex or an EC, put it, put an ECU on it and then put an FMF on it. That might be a fantastic formula. Is that your formula? How are you going to use this bike? What are you going to do with it? What are you, who are you? What's your age? What experience do you have? How do you ride it? So I, again, to go back, I look at this whole, this whole thing holistically and say, that's a formula for sure. Do you know there's 49 other formulas? And depending on who you are and what you're going to do with your machine, Formula 17 might be the one for you. But the guys on the keyboard, the keyboard, the, the you know the the those guys who are in the chat rooms and the forums and whatever, they they just know that one formula, and it's a damn good formula, and I love it. But is that is that the right formula for you? And, and sometimes it's not the right formula at all. There was a there was a gentleman. I posted a video, uh, just a short little Facebook video the other day, and we're on some slick stuff. We're on some you know. It's, it's snow. It's snow and ice. And uh, there was a traction problem, and uh, somebody fell down off the mountain, fell off the hill. And, the, and one of the comments... Did they do like a roll tumble? Not really. Not really. It was just... It was, well, there was a little bit of rolling, but it was off camera. Anyway, one of the comments came on there and it said, looks like your tire pressure is too high. You should be using a low pressure like, say, 14 PSI. Oh, he knew. Okay. And I laughed at it because I'm going Expert. 14 PSI. The most PSI I've ever put in any dirt bike tire was 15, and I absolutely hated, hated it. it. I feel like if I'm running more than 10, it's ultra high PSI yeah. for me. You're probably and at I, five. And I just... Well, yeah. In this case, we were we were running three. Yeah. And so I th- I just I just and I laughed. I showed it to my wife, and even my wife knew. I I'm like, hey, look, here's a this is really good advice. Let's run low pressure at fourteen. What's he coming and, down from? Twenty to get I, to fourteen? Apparently, maybe or or thirty. You know, he's thinking about his car. You know, put thirty two pressure. You know, thirty two pounds in your car. And so it's funny that you mentioned there are all these different things out there, and it's one of the reasons why the internet is a a hard place to get information is because we're we're drowning in information. We alluded to it earlier. That's one of the things that you're what's one of the services that you're trying to do is look, there's so much information out there and some of you don't have time to hash through it all and so look, you can I'm raising my hand here. Come follow me. Um wow, I just did that. So come follow me. Code word. Um, code word. But but come follow me. I've got some of this stuff figured out and I can, you know, I can make it the easy button. I hear about, you know, staples. They talk about that in their commercials. It's like, oh, push the easy button or whatever. And that's kind of what I see that you're doing with the different packages that you offer. And I think it's fantastic. I think you're hitting a niche of people where, um, you know, you're going to be successful. You've already had the success. You've seen enough of it and you're just building on it. And I think it's, I think it's super uh, inspiring. And I hope that more people can try to follow in your footsteps, my footsteps, and let's build the moto community 
you know, and let's, let's do something good for, for others. I feel like if we put good out there, good will then come back. Have you noticed that in your, in your life and in your business practices? Uh, it was taught to me somehow along the line that, um, if, if, if a person has an attitude where they're going to give it away, give it away, give it away free through your own, um, willingness. So everyone gets something begrudgingly for free. And that has like a string attached. There's an emotional string attached to it. If somebody just hands you something and you could tell that there's, that they're giving it to you with a, with a clenched fist, like as, as it leaves their hand to yours, they're sort of, dra it's dragging through their hand. It's not true or pure. However, if the hand is open and they're glad to give it to you and they're glad to see what you do with it, both of us are sort of energized from that. There's a whole different exchange of, of, of everything. And I want to live in that second sort of space. I just feel good about what I do and what I'm doing when I don't care if you return back. I have guys, here's, here's something funny too, a little anecdote. Um, so I started this Facebook group as an act of, um, filling, I think a void that I saw where there was not a lot of really good, competent technical stuff. And there's, and it's not just me, there's other dudes that contribute and are a part of this who are, who are as good as I am and as smart as who. Yeah. You've got several monitor or several admins we, and moderators. Yes. Yeah, so we've got some high quality industry people in this. And if you notice, I mean, if you know who these names are now, now, if you're just looking at the names and the members, you may not know, but I do, right. I, there's industry guys, there's high level industry guys, tons and tons in this group. And I get messages, you know, often from guys saying, you know, thanks for the value that this adds to the community. But so here's my anecdote. I'll have people who will, who will flame up at me in messages or whatever. And they'll say, oh, you just started this because you're trying to sell us your swag. Fair enough. I don't, I don't diminish the fact that, that I have something to offer and I, and I have a platform here and you could see that there is this commercial tie. I try not to make it overt. I intentionally do what I can to like, look, I could turn this into an advertising platform every day. I could be up there, you know, plastering it with, yeah. with, with product. And same with, same with my group. I I'm, I'm the least active person on my group. I feel like for me, it's, it's a different, re and I'll, uh, but keep going with yours. So yes, I am a commercial entity out trying to feed my family and, and keep a business going, but I'm also giving away what people maybe don't realize is I've spent a crap ton of my time answering question, helping guys out and don't know if ever or at all, anything will come back to me. And I am perfectly fine with that. hundred percent fine with that. And so, so people will flame up and they'll say, you know, you just created this, try to find, you know, new customers. I don't dispute that, but that's not what I'm about. Look, here's, here's, here's my theory on that. You got to buy your, you're going to buy stuff from anybody. You're going to open up your wallet and hand some of your money to somebody. Why not me? Why not me? Look, I spend a lot of my personal time on this. I spend a lot of effort. I, I create a lot of content that I'm giving it away. If you're going to buy it from somebody, why not me? Why not from me? Absolutely. I'm giving it to you at a fair price. I'm giving it to you above board. Everything I do is above board. Anybody who has ever had any problem, you can contact me. And another thing, I'm in a public format. And so I know guys who sell stuff who, I don't know if they're hiding, but they are not publicly out there to receive the feedback and comments from their customers. That is to say, if it was negative, there would be no way that they're going to interact or see that because they're sort of maybe hiding or running from that. I'm active and out there. So if I'm treating people badly, if I'm hawking crap, if I don't know what the hell I'm doing, then this thing would light up with that sort of response. And so it holds me accountable. So I see this as a way for me to interact with people, spread and disseminate knowledge. Hopefully it's good. If not, call me out. And this whole system holds me accountable because if I go off the rails, then it will 
self-correct itself by people um, bringing that information out. So I don't, I don't, I don't see the, the problem. And if there is, let me know. Send me a message. If you don't like it, send me a message. Um, but I think it's, pre, I think it's, if I do say so myself, kind of, kind of brilliant. No, I love it. I love it. I created the Facebook group that I have really for a selfish reason, which was only to get feedback from people. I'm trying to find my, oh, here it is, my latest post, um, way down in the list. I, I just created it to say, hey, look, I'm going to do these three options. I'm going to review oh, this yeah, bike or that bike or this socks or whatever. And so my latest post was like, hey, I'm going to sell these socks later this year. What sock do you guys like? And so I get input from people. And then I know which product to spend my money on because the number one pro the number one what poll it was a poll what, what? right and so I'm like look number one product beat out number two product by a factor of two x I know that's the product that I want to try to sell next but uh, the other thing I'll do is I'll be like look I'm I want to review uh you know the, these four bikes which ones do you guys want to see the most and so the people narrowed it down to a YZ250FX 2020 250FX and it beat out KTM's it beat out Hondas it beat out multiple things. And so that's where, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I started. Well, I mean, that is the reason I started my Facebook group is literally to get instant feedback from a, from like-minded people. And I, it's a closed group. I don't have that many moderators. I kind of go through there and, and try to figure out, you know, who I'm going to let in and who I'm not going to let in. And I, I decline at least as many people as I let in. And I'm not even sure where to go with it at this point. Cause now there's, I don't know, there's like 4,000 people Millions. in there. And no, it's only like 4,000, but I just, I don't know. At this point, I'm like, do I have what I need? And some people have said it's a really good community that they can go into and they can get feedback. And if I get, a, you know, somebody's pissed off and saying this guy is spreading trash, then I'll mute him for a little bit. I, I even threatened to do that to you. I, you just caught me in a joking mood. I hope that you, I hope you knew I was joking. Uh, so I, so yeah, I post this thing on there and then, and then Mike comes back with this dude in this like, a banana hammock. What was that thing called? It's a mankini. I don't. I don't know what it was, but all I know it was it was popping up. I had it over on one of my screens, and I kept like my eye kept going <laughs> over to it, and I literally just had to like I had to cut the picture out because it was just it was too provocative for me. I just couldn't stop. Some hairy chested dude in a mankini. <laughs> so yeah, but good times. So I mean, uh, we've talked about a ton of stuff. I mean, what hmm. what did we miss? I mean, we could go on for hours, but what did we miss? I mean, so I'm looking at your questions. What's my favorite dirt bike? Probably a 500. Really? I'm pretty unbiased about that. What's my favorite dirt bike mod? Um, for me right now, it's, it's a, it's a blended setup of, um, so I've been really trying to crack the code of like, what is my favorite setup? It's a great set of soft intermediate tires with a soft mousse. So I really like the Michelin bib yeah. mousse. Those have a feel that I estimate somewhere in eight or nine. PSI seven, eight depends on how, so there's some variables in moves. You can play with sizing, you can cut some out, you can drill it. There's all, you can overstuff it. So you can really play with the feel. I like a, I like a standard feel of about seven or eight. Okay. So soft intermittent tires, uh, moose. How long do you run your moose? Like uh, how many hours would you say on average? So I run the front, I run the, I'll replace the front moose with the front tire about half life, it'll start to feel soft. And so I'll, I'll dismount. How, how many hours is this is a front tire then? It depends. Depends on the riding. You know, my bikes are plated. So we're running on the highway. We're in Mexico. It's, it's so hard to like put in, put a time on it. Let's just say a lot. Front tire is going to last a long time. Um, 
So I will have generally half-life of front tire is I'll pull it out, I'll clean it, I'll relube it, I'll slice it, and then take a donor piece of moose from another older moose and put a foot in there, foot or so, cram it in there, and that'll sort of plump it out again and then run that. So a front oh, moose wow. will typically last a full front tire, but it needs about a half-life service. The rear moose, I like them the flabbier, the better, the softer, mushier, more blown out, more trashed out. Are you out. a two rimlock kind of guy on the back? or anything? Sometimes, yeah, I'll run two, for sure one. I like the Warp 9 rim lock, which is aluminum. It's got the titanium thread. You mean aluminium? Aluminium, aluminium. And then the thread is titanium. And then it's got really beefy sides and very aggressive bite. And you can get them in two sizes. I like the bigger size. That has worked really well for me. So a single Warp 9, big one, works good. I like a soft, beat-up rear moose. So I will I will last, a, I will run a moose, sometimes two rear tires. You know, the front, rear tires typically last half as long as the front. So I might replace the rear tire and keep the old moose and run that one a second time. I'll, I'll do two fronts to one rear, typically. Got it. Um, Recluse CX, amazing. Um, suspension, valved, sh- uh, shimmed, sprung. I like to play with oil weights, oil heights. I'm a nerd that way, so I really like to get in there and do all of that, get that suspension. You do all your own suspension. Yeah. Uh, and with the, and I'm not naturally inclined to understand it as well as I should. And so I have good guys I can turn to that help me out a lot. And then, um, like, uh, my 501 on the 17 that we do, I do a lot of test riding on get ECU with, uh, some maps that Derek Harris and I have developed. Derek Harris is my tuning partner. Um, Big shout to him, big plug for him. Anybody who's doing anything with high-level tuning really needs to get with this guy, engine builder. Um, if you want a 300, I mean, he's making two-stroke 300s that are that are nearing, nearly 60 horsepower, like insane amount of power and performance out of these 300s. That's only achievable, not so much just with bolt-on parts. Guys ask me all the time, what's the best bolt-ons? I don't know. I'm not sure. Again, it's like, what are you doing with it? Why do you Why do you think you want the most horsepower? That's that's a really common question. Is like, how do I get the most horsepower out of this bike? Really, I don't think you know what to do with it. If you had it, are you sure you want that? So many so many variables in all this. Um, so get ECU with some great maps. My map one is just like a wide open race map. Map two is my off road enduro map. Less ignition, two and a half degrees less less ignition. Very mild profile. The um, fuel hit is less, so the accelerator pump feature has been dialed back. And with a traction control knob, I can make my bike, my 500, trackable and and um, uh, feel like like a Yamaha TT 230. You know, I can take a 500. Is that a good thing? Yeah, you can make your bike feel yes. like a Yamaha TTR 230. Yes. So here's a great example. Uh, we were in Southern Utah a couple weeks ago on a ride in the Tokerville Twist. You've okay. probably done yeah. that. Yep. And I had banged my elbow, and so that was hurting. We were kind of at the tail end of a ride. Uh, we had just done the Dry Falls Creek, okay. which is a big, it drops into Zion, and then you run the Colab Terrace Road up to Smith Mesa Road, and you go around Smith Mesa. I haven't done that because I haven't been street legal. Okay, let's let's get you up on that. So just an absolute beautiful day. So great. We'd put in a ton of miles. And I was kind of clapped out, and my I think I hurt my knee. Hurt my, you know, woe is me, right? And then I broke my shift lever off. I was stuck in second gear. I was kind of over it. <laughs> and the remaining five or six miles back to the you put it in TTR mode. I I put it in map two, which is my softer off road map. I cranked traction up to ten, and that bike and with my recluse, that bike was like a grand. I could hand that bike to any child 
who could touch the <laughs> ground and they could ride that bike. And so it, it, you, I can, I can take my bike from absolute lunatic race bike, Baja 1000 bike. So the map, the map that's in that bike will run the Baja 1000 tomorrow. So I can go from a race bike to a TT 230 putt, putt, you know, trail bike just with flipping a couple of things and, and dialing some stuff in. So the variable, the very, the, the variability that I can get out of that machine, the, the infinite number of personalities that I can, is, I can, is awesome. It's amazing. And so really that's my argument for this being like probably my favorite all purpose bike. So best mods, recluse, uh, moose, really good set of soft intermediate tires, uh, ECU with that kind of variability, just a really good suspension setup. Like, like that's, that's the machine to have. So that's awesome. not one mod; it's more like five. Hey, that's awesome though. You've got you've got the system that you you love, and it works it works for you. So, this has been super fun. How do people get How do people get in touch with you, Mike? Like, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Um, so I probably through tacomoto.co. So tacomoto.co. That's sort of my main portal, and then I've got the Instagram and the Facebook and the group. Um, cause on takamoto.co, if you scroll down, your, con your, your details are all up there. Yeah. So. Everything in there. I'm trying not to hide, trying to get out there. Las Vegas. Yes. Lost wages. We even talked about Las Vegas earlier. Come and see us. Come, come by the shop. Come visit me. I have people roll through Vegas all the time and we, we, your shop is right there in, on the strip in between like, uh, the, the roller coat, you know, the, the Ferris wheel. <laughs> I'm one of the bubbles in the wheel. Come see me. Yeah. He's right, he's right down there on the strip. No, he's not on the strip. He's probably way off the strip. Mike is a stand-up dude. Don't 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 uh, don't let my joking get into into this. This has been super fun. I've I've totally enjoyed this. We could do this again and again, and I'm sure that we will. Um, Mike wants to get me out on these uh, dual sport bikes. He wants to get me out riding on the road and stuff. I think you'll blow your mind. I think you'll love it. He wants to blow my mind. He wants me to take me on the Tokerville Twister and then they go into Zion with all the people and. And then he's getting, no, the one that I need to do though with you is Baja. I, I need to either go with you or Paul down to Baja, get myself a, you know, 500 EXC and just go down there. Throw come, on, with, come with me and it'll be turnkey. I'll get you the bike and everything. Throw on the moose bibs. So if people want to do that, because I think that's, there's probably going to be people on this podcast that want to do that. If they want to do a, one of these plug and play awesome riding trips down to Baja, do they just hit you up on, on Takamoto.co? Is that the best way to do it? Jingle mingle. Just just all the platforms. Yep. Find me. Because I think that would be... For me, that's the one that interests me the most because it's like there are so many people that I know that go there and they talk about all these ins and outs and everything you have to do. And it's almost a little bit intimidating. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so if you can go with a group of guys and uh, with Mike that knows exactly where to go, because you're even like having to find gas in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah, we can be. And sometimes we'll set up where we'll have a local guy. So I've got these contacts and relationships down there where guys will meet us halfway through the day in a truck with lunch, tacos, gas, water, everything. You see this truck out in the middle of nowhere and he's come <laughs> three or four hours to, to, this, give you gas. to this meet point. So we can coordinate and link up with this guy and then on we go. Yeah. So that is the type of, that's the type of like white glove service that you're not going to get anywhere else. So check out his uh, Instagram, check out him on Facebook, check it out on tacomoto.co. You will not be disappointed. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining me and uh, let's cut loose, man. Thanks, Kyle. You're okay. the best. Thanks. <laughs>